Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, Governor Stacey Abrams is in the news today. <laughs> welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, I guess it would help if I pulled up the call screening program, huh? Um, it is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Yeah, Stacey Abrams, uh, the Politico, is reporting this number. I had tip to my friend Brent who sent this to me. I missed it. Uh, the Politico is reporting that Stacey Abrams is calling around uh, Democratic power brokers asking them to tell Biden campaign officials she should be vice president, according to multiple labor leaders familiar with the discussions, uh, she and everyone else. So, okay, l- let me put this in perspective. Again, by the way, I was not going to start here. This is how one tweet from one friend can send my morning spiraling out of control. We'll get to what I wanted to talk about here in a minute. Uh, but this is actually, the, so the political has this story up on uh, how, Uh, They're looking at the black vote. They want to turn it out. Uh, Within the campaign, the debate hinges on whether Biden has the black vote locked up or whether the bigger need we have is to put someone left-leaning on the ticket. Uh, I think they've got the black vote locked up, by the way. Joe Biden's advisors and allies have become torn over whether it is more important to choose an African-American or a progressive running mate. While the two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, there's an ongoing debate about whether Biden has the black vote locked up or whether the bigger need we have is to put someone left-leaning on the ticket. A strategist, what, what, behold the healing power of and. I mean, to her credit, Stacey Abrams is black and very progressive. She would be perfect in that role. The strategist was one of multiple Democrats who described a debate in and around the periphery of Biden's campaign about the significance of race and ideology. Uh, Stacey Abrams, a former Georgia lawmaker and... Oh, my goodness. They had the audacity to say an unsuccessful candidate for governor. What? I thought she was robbed. How dare Politico say it like that? The racist. They're clearly racist. Stacey Abrams, a former Georgia lawmaker and current governor of Georgia, Asterix, has been privately calling Democratic power brokers, asking them to tell Biden campaign officials she should be vice president, according to multiple labor leaders familiar with the discussions. Dun, dun, dun. Let me play the audio that I didn't play yesterday because I wanted to, to spare you this clip from Stacey Abrams with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press. Do you worry that no matter how qualified you are on paper, that the perception you've not run a large organization as an executive office holder um, or have not won statewide is a knock against you? For the last year and a half, I have run three national organizations, including Fair Fight 2020, which is in 18 states protecting the right to vote. I've been traveling the country promoting a census that is accurate and that helps us prepare for the next pandemic and for redistricting. And I've been working to make certain that poor families, especially those in the South, but around the country have the services they need. I believe in doing the work. I've been doing it since the day I did not become governor and I will continue to do so. And I do so at a national level because I understand that while I may be grounded in Georgia and a daughter of the South, My responsibility is to do the work to make sure all of our communities are healthy and safe and able to participate in our democracy. You know, back in 2016, 2017, a very prominent Democrat approached me and said they wished I would start writing about Abrams because she was a bit of a grifter. 
in their mind that she was using a whole lot of a whole lot of um, resources to get Democrat donors to get on board to um, onto her campaign and, and give her money to turn out votes, and it wasn't happening. I mean, for perspective, I've talked about this before ad, ad nauseum in the opinion of my producer. Uh, Abrams got 980,000 people to register to vote in Georgia between 2016 and 2018 in anticipation of a gubernatorial run. She got roughly a million people registered to vote in Georgia. And by the way, she overwhelmingly is to credit for that. Her, Her campaign team aggressively was able to get almost a million people registered to vote in Georgia. Less than 100,000 of them turned out to vote. I wish I had a cricket sound effect at this moment. Yes, she got a million people registered to vote less than when you do the math, when you look at who actually turned out to vote, less than 100,000 of them actually turned out to vote. And by the way, they split between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. They didn't all go Democrat. Uh, when you do voter registration efforts, you really aren't supposed to target. I mean, they both sides try. Let's be honest. Both sides do try to only get there, but you can't uh, exclude. If you want to, if you're doing a voter registration drive, you can't tell. So, oh, no, 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 you're white. You're not allowed to do it. Or you're black. You're not allowed to do it. Nope. You got to let them register to vote. And so the Abrams campaign did this and less than 100,000 of them actually turned out to vote. Problem. And she ultimately, it's not that she lost the governor's race. She didn't even come close enough to get into a runoff. And you can scream all you want about voter suppression. uh, But the fact of the matter is she just didn't have what it took. She was only successful running for a state house seat in Georgia. She became the the minority leader in the state house. And then nothing. I will tell you what this is about. Let's be honest here. That Stacey Abrams, and remember, months and months ago, Joe Biden floated the idea of Stacey Abrams as VP. When he was entering the race last year, Joe Biden floated the idea of going on and naming Stacey Abrams as his vice presidential pick. And she not only rebuffed him, but insultingly so. She wasn't going to be used as someone's pawn, uh, and she wanted no part in it. And now the race is settled, and it is Joe Biden. Now she's like, wait, 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 Joe. I want to be your vice president. I I can win Georgia for you. Here's here's bottom line. Stacey Abrams rejected this out of hand months ago, and I don't think would be so aggressively lobbying to be the vice presidential pick if she thought Georgia was winnable in 2022. That's a big tip-off no one's talking about. If she thought Georgia was winnable in 2022, she wants to be governor. She wants to be the executive of the state and then become president. She knows history. Stacey Abrams is not a dumb woman. She knows history. The odds of a presidential incumbent party winning a third term is slim. Now, maybe she's thinking Joe's only going to stand one term, and so second term would be hers, and she could be president. And and that's a viable calculation on her part because Joe Biden has talked about being a one-term guy. But it also strongly suggests that Georgia is off the table for the Democrats. If she wants to be Uh, The Democratic vice presidential pick, it does, in fact, suggest that she's giving up on running against Brian Kemp in 2022. And, in fact, it suggests that Brian Kemp is handling himself better than the media would have you believe. In fact, someone sent me a a tweet this morning. Uh, Where is it? Uh, Let me pull up my messages. Yes. Uh, This is I I don't know who tweeted this this morning, but it's right. President Mitt Romney's response to this crisis would have been incredibly good and the press would have destroyed him over it. That is the truth. That is the truth. 
it would have been good, and he still would have gotten destroyed. And that is why we have opened the floodgates for Donald Trump here, because it doesn't matter what Donald Trump does, we know, in fact, that the media will savage him. Any Anyone who has an R next to their name, the media is going to be against. There's your Stacey Abrams update. We'll get more into this. This isn't where I wanted to start. I wanted to start with this. This is audio from the president of the United States with a with a ridiculous question, by the way, up front. An American president loses more Americans over the course of six weeks than died in the entirety of the Vietnam War. Does he deserve to be reelected? So, yeah, we've lost a lot of people. But if you look at what original projections were, 2.2 million we're probably heading to 60,000, 70,000. It's far too many. One person is too many for this. And I think we've made a lot of really good decisions. The big decision was closing the border or doing the ban. People coming in from China, obviously, other than American citizens, which had to come in. Can't say you can't come in. You can't come back to your country. I think we've made a lot of good decisions. I think that Mike Pence and the task force have done a fantastic job. I think that everybody working on the ventilators, uh, you see what we've done there, have done unbelievable. The press doesn't talk about ventilators anymore. They just don't want to talk about them, and that's okay. So the models that everyone has disputed that we would have massive death toll, turns out that the modeling is right. We're well beyond that. The model range was always 40,000 to 200,000 which sounds bizarre. I realize that it's a wide range, but as I've been saying all along, it's like a hurricane path. And as you go along, the the, the modeling shifts and, and the we narrow down uh, the field and the path and, and we get to where the model should be based on where the data is. And the model changes. And as the model changes, People are still questioning the model. Well, the models have always suggested 40,000 to 200,000. You can say that was too wide a range. That's fine if you want. But we're we're closing in on 100,000 deaths. And so on the right in particular, and I got to call out my own side on this. And, and you know what? Let me pause for a moment. And, and let me give my, my very brief dissertation on this. I fundamentally believe as a conservative that if we can't hold our own sides to the standard we hold the other side to, that our intellectual integrity and honesty collapse. And we're going to beat the left, not by owning the left, as as some of the people on the right decide now. We're just going to be as insulting and aggressive as the left. I I believe we actually beat them by making a compelling case that our arguments and our ideas are better than theirs. I believe we do it by using reality-based data and showing that their quest for the ever-going utopia on Earth doesn't pan out. It's never panned out in a socialist country. People wind up starving to death and dictators come to power. And we use the logic and real-world evidence to be able to show that. But we have to be reality-based in doing that. And when people on our side start going into self-parody and nonsense, I believe we have an obligation to call them out. This is very much like in 2003-2004, Fred Barnes of the Weekly Standard went to the Wall Street Journal and penned an op-ed on behalf of George W. Bush and called him a big government conservative. Friends, there can be no such thing as a big government conservative because a big government requires more of your earnings to run the Leviathan. And as more of your earnings go to Washington, you can be less free. 
And conservatism ultimately is about individual liberty and your path forward. Certainly, it can be grounded in morals and all sorts of stuff, depending on your strain of conservatism. But the bottom line is that government should get out of the way and allow you the freedom to be able to pursue your heart's desire. And it is a negative liberty, not a positive liberty. A negative liberty is when the government stays out of your way so that you can proceed and do what you want. A positive liberty is when the government gives you a safety net So you never have to worry about screwing up. You can go learn to be a puppeteer sticking your hand up the rectum of a puppet and moving its lips like so many people in the media are done by Democrats because the government's going to provide your health care for you, your dental bill's going to be taken care of, and your education's going to be taken care of. So you can be a, a slacker in society for the rest of your life. What a conservative says is that, you know what, the government's not going to give you a safety net. We will give a safety net to the deserving poor, the people who through no fault of their own can't get off the bottom ladder, and we'll do use government to try to elevate them into a position in society. But for the rest of you, you go out and do what you can to survive, to thrive, to grow, and we'll make sure that you can compete against the big guy. And if you take out the big guy, you become the big guy. If you don't take out the big guy, maybe you go work for the big guy. But we're going to keep we're going to keep government out of the way. We're going to keep regulation low. We're going to keep taxation low so that you can thrive on your own. We're always going to have the poor. Jesus is right. The question is, do we have the exact same people poor? The left would say, let's keep the same people poor, but we'll make them comfortable. The right would say, no, we, we can elevate this person out of poverty by letting them pursue their ambitions. And if they fail, they fail. There are two concepts here, uh, the positive and, and the negative liberty. And the government on the left wants to be massive and then provide you all the trappings of a comfortable existence. Where on the right, we want you to hunger for the comfortable existence so that you can pursue it with ambition if you have it. Now, all of that is to say that the right depends on reality. I realized during the Bush administration, the left liked to say they were part of the reality-based community, but they never were. They always delved into conspiracy. And now, unfortunately, too many people on the right are delving into conspiracy. And one of the grand conspiracies out there are the numbers. How many people are actually dying of COVID-19? Uh, there are grand and elaborate conspiracies shaping up on the right to claim that it really is just a bad flu. And the actual real-world data disputes that. And so people on the right have begun to dispute the data with even more elaborate conspiracy theories. I think we probably need to, at this point, have a conversation about those grand and elaborate conspiracy theories because we all want the same goal, reopen the country. But there are two ways you go about reopening the country, and one is with an honest assessment of the data, and one is with a flawed assessment of the data built on conspiracy theory. I'm willing to make a prediction. Uh, We we may need to log this, assuming the show is going to be around forever. Uh, In five years hence, uh, we we will will be able to circle back to it. I genuinely believe that in the next five years, we are going to see a series of headlines about fraud related to the reporting of COVID-19. We're going to see an outpouring of data about how hospitals overstated COVID-19 to get more money, how individuals gamed the PPP system, how administrators within the federal government were bribed, 
or or steered money towards friends. I, I think we're going to see all these things. I think the FBI and the Justice Department uh, and, and outside watchdog groups are going to be overwhelmed in the next five years. I think they will. At the same time, uh, I, I think we need to be honest about the numbers uh, and we need to consider what are the actual numbers. Now, by the way, you should know that Georgia has updated its website for daily numbers. If you text the word data to 33777, text data to 33777, you will see the numbers. You will see, uh, you'll get back a link to the Georgia Department of Public Health revised numbers. They're now doing real-time tracking as best they can. So if you click the link that comes back, we have 995 deaths in Georgia. There are 24,351 confirmed cases in Georgia. 1,073 people have been put in ICU. 4,749 people hospitalized. Those are totals, uh, not, not current. But what is the number nationwide? Because the president pointed out we are approaching, we're going to be approaching 70,000 deaths. The New York Times actually has a story out today that we have probably undercounted COVID-19 deaths by 40,000 people. And the Financial Times has a report out that globally, we have probably underestimated COVID-19 deaths by about 60%. But while the media is reporting this, there are some people on the right who believe that the toll is overblown, that, that fewer people have died. The, the virus is way more common, is way more widespread, and, and the numbers are rigged. Now, I, I credit where it's due, um, there are some people who are accurately pointing out, and this is why I think we're going to see a bunch of fraud, that the federal government in the CARES Act is given a 20% additional payment for Medicare and Medicaid to hospitals that deal with COVID-19 patients as a primary or secondary cause. So if you have a patient and that patient is Medicare or Medicaid and that patient has COVID-19, you're going to get a 20% supplemental payment. So you know what's going to happen. I mean, this is human nature. In bureaucracies, suddenly every patient who's a senior citizen is going to be labeled as a COVID-19 patient. Now, there are ways to be able to deduce that. If your Medicare, Medicaid patients are of a higher percentage of COVID-19 than your senior citizens who are not on Medicare, Medicaid, and such a class of people does exist, then it's a pretty good tell. I mean, COVID-19 does not pull someone's card and say, oh, this person's on Medicare, time to infect them. No. I mean, they, they look at people who are who are senior citizens and, and they're the most vulnerable. And so if you've got people who aren't on Medicare or Medicaid and, and they are uh, vastly less proportional than Medicare or Medicaid patients, that raises a red flag that this hospital is engaged in fraud by classified Medicare or Medicaid patients disproportionately as COVID-19. So there are ways to get that. And the fraud is going to happen. But the question is, what is the number? What is the actual number? Because I, I, I would I would um, acknowledge and submit that we don't know the real number. Because some people die and there's a coding error. Some people die and it's willful. 
people have seen the Dr. Burks clip. It, it's been completely taken out of context where she says anyone who dies who has COVID-19 is going to be listed as COVID-19. She actually clarified that, and, and no one on the right wanted to pay attention to it. Uh, that that means, for example, heart attacks, the number one cause of uh, COVID-19 death is a heart attack. And so they're going to join heart attack deaths in COVID-19. There's a method to the madness there that's been employed in hospitals for a long time. But what is the actual number? What does the conspiracy say? We should talk about it. Hello, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you'd like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Let's go to Robert in Fayetteville. Welcome. Morning, Eric. Uh, I wanted to find out, you're, you're talking about the hospitals um, and, and the possible fraud. Is there any data online to show what patients that have gone into the hospitals have came out of the hospitals recovered from COVID-19 versus the ones that have gone into the hospital and died in the hospital because of COVID-19. Is there any data online to show hospital to hospital this information? Well, first, Robert, I, I want you to know I'm mad at you because I can hear birds oh, no. chirping in the background, and that means I that walk every I walk you're outside every and I'm stuck with you. <laughs> It is a beautiful day outside to go for a walk. Yeah, it and, sure and, is. Man, it this sure weather. Is. Okay, all right. So uh, in all honesty, your question, no, there's not. Uh, and a large part of that is because of HIPAA issues. Um, they've got to wait to I transmit see. the data to public health officials. And the public health officials, depending on state, are actually doing a pretty bad job. Georgia is terrible when it comes to that sort of data. They're getting better. But when you get to the when right. you get to the top line reporting in Georgia, even there, they don't list uh, total number of recoveries and, and they don't do it in real time. Uh, but the, the upside of that is that though we in Georgia have uh, twenty four thousand three hundred fifty one cases, uh, overwhelmingly, you've got about twenty thousand people, fifteen to twenty thousand people who have recovered. Okay, I see. Okay. So okay. there's and that's good we, news. Yeah, we know that based on the on the long term surveillance data in Georgia that overwhelmingly you got twenty four thousand cases, fifteen thousand of them currently have fully recovered from it. That that is good news that doesn't get reported. But no, we we don't right. do individual hospital stuff and, and that has largely to do with federal government regulations in hospitals. Uh, but that data is forthcoming. The problem is that the CDC has a hold on that data because the CDC is only now beginning to report confirmed and suspected COVID-19 cases. They had been just doing confirmed cases. And their okay. top line reporting, this gets a little confusing in the weeds. In, in fact, I'm, I'm going to go on and, and let you go there and I'll keep talking so you can listen to me. Um, the CDC overall reporting is just confirmed cases. They have not yet added presumed cases to the data that they're publicly reporting. If you go on their website, they are doing presumed cases as well. Now, why? The reason they're doing it that way is because for scientific purposes right now, they want an accurate count of someone who had a positive test. Particularly as it comes to deaths, they want positive tests only. But the way we report the flu in this country is positive tests plus suspected tests or suspected cases. There is a growing body of evidence, an overwhelming, I should say, body of evidence that there are we are undercounting COVID-19 cases in the state and in this country. Uh, I know people who had COVID-19 
and did not get the test. And we're undercounting those people. Now, I know people who think in, in October, November of last year they had it, and that's largely impossible, disputed by every world organization, world health organization. And I don't mean the WHO. I mean every individual country's health organization says that would have been impossible. Uh, we know the jump in China. We know where it came from. Uh, if you believe that you got it in October, November, what you're saying is you got it from somewhere other than China, which is just Chinese propaganda. That's what the Chinese want you to believe. Uh, there were viruses circulating, uh, and they may have had similar uh, symptoms, but it wasn't COVID-19. COVID-19, we know, started spreading this country earlier than was first reported. It started spreading in January. Uh, we now know there were deaths in California that preceded the deaths in Washington State. But in terms of actual recovery and, and the data out there state by state, it's bad. It really, really is bad. And that, to some degree, has allowed the conspiracy theorists to take hold of the data. And I want to lay this out for you um, nationwide so that you have a sense of this. Let me do the Johns Hopkins data uh, because it is the most up-to-date data, but there is a caveat there. Johns Hopkins is reporting the numbers that are released by all the states, and the states are all doing confirmed cases, except New York, which is also doing presumed cases. So New York is doing confirmed and presumed. Other states are only doing positive tests. And there are 993,532 cases in the United States. 56,201 have died across the United States. Now keep in mind, those are all uh, COVID-19 death listed on their death certificate. Um, probable deaths are in New York City. Everywhere else, it's just confirmed. That is, uh, to be listed as having died of COVID-19, what has to happen is that has to be the primary driver of your death, and you have to have tested positive for it to get to the 56,201. Now, I know some of you don't want to believe that. All I can do is give you the data. If you don't want to believe the data, that's fine. But the data is for a coroner to, to code your death certificate as COVID-19. There are guidelines. It's the same guidelines that follow for cancer, that follow for, I mean, you know, there are people who have cancer and they die of a stroke. And hospitals have been doing this for hundreds of years and they know, okay, the primary motivator for this person dying was the stroke, not the cancer. Or it could be a stroke induced by terminal cancer. And they say, actually, it was the cancer that killed the person. And it presented in the form of blood clots that caused a stroke. So it was the cancer, not the stroke. Hospitals have been doing this forever. It is a conspiracy theory to think they're suddenly disrupting everything. So there are 56,201 people who died of COVID-19 in the United States. All of those except for New York City are confirmed tested positive. New York City is including the presumed. What we have to ask ourselves to get to get into the conspiracy, and I don't, by the way, I don't want to bore you and, and bog you down on this. There is actually a point here. And the point is, I keep hearing from people that this is, this is no worse than the flu. Well, the flu, if you only take confirmed cases of the flu, last year only 7,000 people died of the flu. Now, you and I both know the number is actually over 40,000. But only 7,000 people died of the flu who had had a positive test of the flu. With COVID-19, 56,201. Now, let's subtract 3,000 because that's the number of presumed deaths in New York City. You're still over 50,000. So over 50,000 in eight weeks have died of 
COVID-19 in this country who tested positive. 7,000 people died of the flu last year who tested positive. This isn't a bad flu. This is worse than the flu. So my point here is this. On the right, we need to be fact-based. We need to be data-driven. And on the right, there are a lot of people saying, aha, hospitals are are inflating because they get 20%. So the numbers can't be be right on, on deaths and all. You've got, but here's the problem. The CARES Act was only passed in the last month. So you've got to presume that going back to the beginning of February, hospitals were inflating the death rate, knowing that a law that had not even been written or even conceived of was going to be written and conceived of that would give them extra money for their COVID-19 patients. You've got to actually believe that. You've got to believe. So the the hospitalization rate globally is 20% of the death rate is between 3% and 5%. So to believe this grand conspiracy, you've got to actually believe that the governments of the world through some Illuminati-like organization were calling around the world saying, hey, we need everybody's death rate to be 20% mortality to be 3%. Screw your numbers to make sure that happens because the American hospitals are going to get some extra money here in in a couple of months when a law is written. I mean, you got to, you got to believe this sort of elaborate conspiracy to assume the numbers are rigged that much. I mean, here's the bottom line. You got 7,000 confirmed positive flu case deaths in this country versus 50,000 COVID-19 confirmed positive COVID-19 deaths in this country. How many of those deaths, how many of those 50,000 deaths are rigged? Is it 40,000? Is it 20,000? Is it all of them? You know, the number one cause of a COVID-19 death is a heart attack. Are, are we rigging the heart attacks in this country? You just, you've, you've, you've got to believe all sorts of elaborate stuff to presume that the data is that far rigged. And, and by the way, I concede that there is wrong data in there. I concede that someone somewhere did have a heart attack. It was not COVID-19 related and they listed as COVID-19. I concede that someone somewhere in there had cancer and they also had COVID-19 and the cancer killed them and it was listed as COVID-19. I absolutely believe that's true. But is it 100 people? Is it 10,000 people? Is it 50,000 people? I, you know how I, I view this? So on the left and the right, on the left, let, let, let's take the left. The left believes, Stacey Abrams believes, that there were so many voters who were suppressed in Georgia who could not vote. Never mind that Georgia had record high uh, African-American participation. Never mind that more black people registered to vote in Georgia uh, than white people. Never mind that the number of black people who turned out to vote in 2018 in Georgia was at a record compared to prior years. Stacey Abrams believes that so many black people were suppressed from voting in Georgia that that's why she lost. Never mind that the data shows more black people voted in Georgia than at any time in Georgia history. Never mind that for the last two election cycles in a row, more black and Hispanic voters proportionally registered to vote than white voters. She believes that voters were suppressed. Now, the odds are there were two or three people in the state of Georgia who showed up at a poll. A poll worker told them they couldn't vote, had some reason. There was a paperwork error, and they consider that suppression. That still didn't change the outcome of the race. That's, that still didn't change the outcome of the race. You, you would have us believe that there were 20,000 suppressed people in Georgia? No, of course not. The data doesn't bear that out. The data shows there was a record number of, of uh, African-American and Hispanic voters who voted. The record shows that there was a record number of African-American and Hispanic voters who registered to vote. Uh, disproportionately more uh, minority voters in Georgia registered to vote than white voters in the past couple of years. 
To say that suppression caused Stacey Abrams to lose is to deny reality. Uh, were there a couple of people in Georgia who couldn't vote, who, who wanted to vote? Yeah, I'm sure there was. Take Dr. Del Rio. You know, Dr. Del Rio is the Emory uh, epidemiologist who's been saying we're all going to die if we don't do something. Uh, Dr. Del Rio lent his name to the Stacey Abrams lawsuit. Why? Because Del Rio wanted to go vote. Uh, his name is D-E-L space R-I-O. They had it listed in the voter registration file as one word, Del Rio, D-E-L-R-I-O, and that caused a hangup in him being able to vote. He said he had to wait uh, a longer amount of time than he should have had to vote, to, to vote, but he actually voted. He wasn't actually suppressed. His name is in the voter suppression lawsuit, but he wasn't actually suppressed. He actually voted. It just inconvenienced him. And I feel very much the same way with this conspiracy theory on on the data. Are there people who their death certificate was screwed up and it was listed as COVID-19 when it really, absolutely, you know that happened. Uh, Don't deny it. Those cases will come up. I heard from somebody uh, this weekend who lost a relative. Uh, the, the relative had cancer. It was late stage. They'd given up treatment. They got COVID-19 and they died. And the hospital said it was the COVID-19 that killed her. And the, the family's like, no, 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 this is already on the verge of death. The family had already been called in for, for cancer. Can it happen? Yeah, I, I totally think it can happen. Is it enough to shape the outcome measurably? No, no, I don't believe it is. And all I can do with you is give you the data. And if you don't like the data, that's on you. That's not on me. All I'm trying to do is give you the numbers. I firmly believe, to go back to the beginning of this program, I firmly believe conservatives need to be the reality-based community. We need to be able to look dispassionately at the data and say that the data is the data. How do we interpret the data and how do we use the data? You know, there are people on the left who say that uh, people who have access to health care perform better than people who don't have access to health care, and that is the data, and that data is true. And so the left decides as a public policy prescription, everyone needs universal health care uh, because then everyone will do better. And the right looks at that and says, we agree with you on the data that people who have access to health care do better than people who don't, but we disagree with you on your policy solution for this reason. We see in countries where everyone has access to health care that the health care quality degrades. That's why rich people come from Great Britain to the United States to get surgeries because there aren't wait lists and everything else. You amplify the successes of Great Britain and you downplay the negatives in Great Britain. You downplay what happens when government takes over healthcare. There are policy differences and you can juice yours up to make it look as more humane than our solution. But our solution is everyone in this country still has access to healthcare, just not necessarily healthcare insurance, although now they do, even though it's terrible and nobody can use it. But the rich in this country tend to have better outcomes. And that's the same for every other country. And you deny that. And what we should do as a public policy is to get government out of the way so a poor person can become rich as opposed to keeping everyone poor and having terrible health care nationally. We can and should be able to do that by assessing the data dispassionately and applying our principles to it. And the principle is not to be a cold-hearted SOB. It's to say that if we do what the left wants, no one in this country will ever have the potential to be successful. And if we do what the right wants, many people will have the opportunity to be successful. And those people will then in turn generate tax revenue to elevate the poor out of poverty through a federal government social safety net that is not libertarian, is conservative, and recognizes some people are the deserving poor and some people are not. Some people are poor through bad life choices and we should not incentivize the moral hazards of their life by continually bailing them out. And some people are poor through no fault of their own and we should help those people as compassionately as we can. It's amazing what you can do when you apply your principles, but first you got to live in the real world of data, not the cuckoo conspiracy theory data of, oh my gosh, 
we have inflated the deaths in this country from COVID-19 by 50,000 so hospitals can get money. Now, look, when you look everywhere on planet Earth right now, the hospitalization rate is about 20% and the death rate is between 3 and 5%. To believe that the United States is an anomaly is to believe that every other country has rigged its data. Our data is fairly consistent with every other country on planet Earth. That's how we can get a general baseline for how this virus affects people. Let's live in the real world, people. The world that Stacey Abrams probably needs to come back to. The world where she does not qualify to be vice president of the United States. So, you know... I wanted to go through all of the all the the data, and I realized I probably bored some of you to death, but you're trapped. There's no other radio station than this one, so you have to listen. And I, I may have bored you to death, but but there's a method to my madness here. This is why I wanted to do it. Because I, I, I want people, particularly those on the left, to understand there is someone out there who is a conservative, who isn't peddling the conspiracy theories, who does believe we really have had more than 50,000 people die, who really does believe 20% of the people who get this virus wind up in the hospital, who really does believe that one to, uh, 3 to 5% of people uh, die, 20% are in the hospital. It is bad, even if, if it's in the, in the Dr. Fauci scenario where really the virus is widespread enough that it lowers to 1%, that's still 10 times higher than the flu. It's a bad situation and I agree and I acknowledge the data I acknowledge the facts and can we still please acknowledge we need to get people out of their houses and back to work because we do because Americans are not designed to sit at home on their couch accepting government handouts Americans are are, are born into a world that believes in live free or die. And we need balance there between living free and dying. Uh, We should be able to live free and not die. Shelter in place, I think, was the right policy. You look at all of the data out there. I mean, just consider what happened if we didn't show. We sheltered in place in Georgia for over a month. And the day-to-day death toll and the day-to-day viral spread has dropped dramatically. Had we not changed our routines, had we not sheltered in place, our hospitals would be overwhelmed. All you got to do is look at Darty County. If you haven't been to Phoebe Putney Memorial Hospital in Darty County, you should go. You genuinely should drive down there and try to get into the front door and see what happens to you. The hospital is overwhelmed. It is slammed. You can't get in. Uh, They they are funneling non-COVID-19 patients to other hospitals. That's how bad it is. They're out of masks. They're out of gowns. They're having to, to resource stuff that they haven't ever had to resource. It's a bad situation. We needed a shelter in place. And I, I, I'm getting angry emails every day now. So Dr. Fauci did this. Dr. Fauci ruined the country. Dr. Fauci should be fired. No. You know what? People were already sheltering in place before the government shelter in place orders came. Do you not remember what Georgia was like the week before Brian Kemp told people to stay home? I went into a restaurant to pick up a to-go order because my family refused to go to the restaurant. There was nobody in the restaurant. I went into a, a into a local restaurant to, to grab a beer with a buddy of mine uh, a week before the shelter-in-place order, and we were the only people sitting at the bar in the restaurant. There was no one around. And the bartender said it had been like that the entire day. No one was there. They were thinking of going out and shutting down because of it. Dr. Fauci did not shut the country down. Dr. Fauci has no authority to shut the country down. But here's the thing. Um, it is, it's, it's time for us to reopen now. It is time for us to get out of our houses. It is time for us to go back to work. 
and we need to be able to figure out how. We need to be able to figure out what we can do to get people back to work. We need to be able to move forward with our lives. And they keep telling us that the virus is going to be with us. And the virus is not going away. And the virus is going to rebound. And the virus is going to come back. Do you know what they're saying now? What they're saying now is is that uh, the modelers, the modelers say Georgia should not reopen until June 28th. I don't know a single person, including the people who are deathly afraid of this virus, who are willing to wait until June 28th to get out of their house. I, I, I don't know a single person. In fact, I know one old person in Georgia who has a breathing condition. I won't tell you who, who the person is. A longtime friend of mine. He is in his 70s. He's got, uh, he, he's got so what is it, COPD or whatever. He's like, I'd rather die than stay home another day. Um, people want to go back to work. They want to get out. They want to see their family. We got to find a way to live with the existence of this virus in our communities. We're just going to have to. Now's a good time to figure it out. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Hope you're having a good morning, afternoon, wherever it is, whenever it is that you get to listen to the program. I can tell you it's six after the hour, wherever you are, the way this radio stuff works. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 is the phone number. The phone lines are open. I Yes, I, I do, contrary to popular opinion, I do actually take phone calls. You know, so we've got just randomly, uh, this is this is not even something I intended. What, what was I going to talk uh, I know what I'm going to talk about, but just randomly. So you know how you call into some of the big radio shows out there? I, I learned this filling in for a, a certain uh, prominent radio show talk show host. I, I've got seven lines that people can call me on. So I, I've got, if you call 877-973-7425, it rolls over to one of seven available lines for you to be on hold while there are other callers uh, and, and wait your turn. There are some major radio show hosts in this country that have two lines or three so that the phone lines are busy all the time. Um, so it's hard to call in. I was just fascinated. It's radio magic, radio magic. I, I, I could I could fool you into thinking that I am somewhere I'm not just just by the power of my voice. It's such an intimate medium. I, that, that's one reason I try to be as scrupulously honest as I possibly can and always correct myself when I'm wrong because you know, I'm a married man. I, I, I know I'm never right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, all right, all right. We got to get into Brian Kim's press conference. Did y'all hear any of his press conference yesterday where he was lighting NBC News on fire? I listened to that press conference and thought, man, I cannot believe Brian Kemp, the nicest man to walk the face of the planet Earth, is lighting a reporter on fire and just beating him up uh, for asking questions. And it turns out it was a national NBC News reporter who had come down to make the governor look bad. And the governor is mad as all get out at the way the media covered this. I, I he One reporter asked him why he was beating up the press finally because Brian Kipp does not have a contentious relationship with the press. He may not get along with reporters, but he doesn't have a really contentious relationship with the media. 
And um, yesterday he did. And finally, we're we're into this person. And so, by the way, let, let me let me back up a little bit because, you know, I do two radio shows. I do three hours in the morning and two hours in the evening. And the two hours in the evening is just in Atlanta on WSB radio. And I spoke for a maybe 10 minutes yesterday because then the governor's press conference was supposed to start at 430. And I thought, OK, I'll have at least two segments. No, no, he he, he started early. Uh, by the way, it's totally unusual for a politician to start a press conference early, but this guy does. Um, so I, I had all of all of 10 minutes max that I talked in my evening show yesterday because the moment the uh, governor's press conference was over, the president's press conference started, and that took up the whole the whole thing. I was done. Um, but nonetheless, uh, so he has this contentious relationship in, in the press yesterday. And finally, a reporter, they're halfway through this press conference, and this reporter finally says, I think it was for like 11 Alive in Atlanta or something, this young guy. He says, so, Governor, why are you so agitated against the press? Or I forget exactly how it was worded, but, I mean, the governor just unleashed. Then he said, let me give you an example. I want to say it's the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but don't hold me to it, but I'm pretty sure it's the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It is, but I, I, I'm not 100% sure. He said there was one media outlet that ran an editorial that the governor was going to get us all killed. That the, the, the governor was opening back up the state of Georgia. Everybody back to work. He was going to get people killed. People weren't going to be able to get unemployment insurance because their, their bosses were going to make them come back to work. Everybody's going to die. It's going to be a terrible situation, and it's all Brian Kemp's fault. And you should blame when 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 your grandma dies of COVID nineteen, you be sure to vote Democrat. That that's basically what what the editorial was. And the next day, the governor released his executive order outlining how businesses could reopen. And the editorial tone of the paper was, well, well, this is all a charade. The governor's been lying. We're not really out reopening. It, it is false for the governor to give people false hope and say we're 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 going to reopen when it's a lie. It's all a lie. He's not really opening. Um, y'all, the governor was very honest in his press conference last Monday in how he said that businesses were going to be able to re. I, I I don't know what that uh, editorialist heard. I, I got no idea what the editorialist heard. But what I heard the governor say was that you would be allowed within reason to reopen your business if you followed certain guidelines that would include social distancing, temperature checks for employees, employees have to wear masks, all these other things. Restaurants would be able to open, but they would have to minimize the number of people that could be in the restaurant. They would have to minimize uh, the number of people who had access. They would have to minimize uh, things that people touch in the restaurant. All of these burdens would be imposed on them if they wanted to reopen. I, I heard the governor say all of this stuff on Monday. And yet the newspaper editor was like, oh, we're all going to die. <laughs> and the next day was like, wait, this isn't really reopening. We've been had. No, he, 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 if you bothered to listen, you know what? You know, the biggest problem people have today. I, I may have a child who has this problem, but I say nothing. You know, the biggest problem people have today. They hear what they want to hear and not what is actually said. This happens in, in, in families. It happens with your children. No, you cannot have the ice cream until you've done your reading. 
Why are you having the ice cream? Well, you said I could have the ice cream. No, I said you could have the ice cream after you were done with your reading. Well, I read, but how much did you read? supposed to read 30 minutes before you have that bowl of ice cream. Not not that that's real world example or anything. Nope, nope. Or the governor has a press conference on Monday and the governor says, if you can do all of these burdensome things, then you can reopen your business. And and the the, the editorialists of newspapers and, and TV stations nationally and locally all say we're all going to die. Brian Kemp is going to get people killed. He has blood on his hands. They're literally, Democrats said that. He has blood on his hands. I believe Stacey Abrams is one of the people who said that. And um, nope, turns out, nope, it, it's it's fairly reasonable. Now, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who I actually think is doing a good job, in terms of Democratic mayors of Atlanta, she is far better than the last couple of mayors. She's having none of this reopening. She went on CNN with, with Chris Cuomo, whose wife uh, apparently uh, bathes in bleach to make sure she doesn't get the virus, and yet he attacks the president for saying people should use disinfectant on themselves uh, and doesn't point out that his wife takes baths and bleach to avoid getting the virus. Nonetheless, I digress. The mayor of Atlanta on with Chris Cuomo. So, Chris, it's interesting. Just before I came on with you, I was talking with my good friend Randall Woodfin, mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, and he is concerned uh, that Alabama in some form or fashion is headed in the same direction. And we were discussing just that. Um, what it is to be at odds with your governor. No mayor wants to be at odds with a governor. I'm sure your brother can attest to what that wrath can feel like. Um, So that should tell you how strongly I feel about this. And what I said to Randall is, you know, we can't sit by, and, and he agreed with this, while people die. And when you look at this, the impact of COVID-19, and especially the impact on African-American communities. I saw an article today on Mm. how hard it is going to hit the South, um, primarily because of African-American communities, the health disparities, income disparities, and all these things that uh, compound the problem of this virus. We we are, we're frustrated. and all we have really right now are our voices to continue to push and hammer home to people to please stay home. Being empathetic to people who need to go to work because they don't have food on their table. And that's why we need the federal government to do its part. Make it easy for people to put money in their pockets so that we can flatten the curve. Uh, Georgia has flattened the curve. The curve is down. You, you want the data? If you text the word data to 33777, you can see this for yourself. I'm going to give it to you right now. Three Text da- the word data, D-A-T-A. Just text it to the number 33777. Uh, and and don't, don't, don't send me the email that you're incapable of texting. You don't have texting. I'm sorry. I, I can't give it to you otherwise. That's the only way I can give it to you right now. Get a friend to show it to you. On April 14th, there were 862 COVID-19 cases in Georgia. On April 15th, there were 729. On April 16th, 804. On April 17th, 772. On April 18th, 393. On April 19th, 476. On April 20th, 726. April 20th is the high point here. The actual high point is, is April 14th, 862. And then down... On April 20th to 726, and then 660. Oh, April 21st, it was 666. 
And then the 22nd, 590. The 23rd, 449. The 24th, 389. The 25th, 137. The 26th, 53. The 27th, 44. So 44 cases yesterday. Now that number will go up. That number will go up uh, as, as testing from yesterday comes back today and tomorrow. Uh, so will the 26, 53. But look, uh, take, take the 20th. 726. By the way, do you know I have confirmed it? Uh, do you know why that number is so high? That number is so high. Uh, well, first of all, the the 18th and 20th were so low because of a lag in testing. And then the 20th was so high because of uh, data from Hall County came in uh, with a surge of nursing home cases in, in the state uh, combined. But overall, if we take out the two low days of the 18th with 393 and the four, and the 19th with 476, let me give you the trend. 862, down to 804, down to 772, down to 726, down to 666, down to 632, down to 590, down to 449, down to 389, down to 137, down to 53, down to 44. It is a clear downward trend in Georgia, which is why the governor wants to allow some businesses to open. I mean, take, take for example, the woman he used as his example yesterday at his press conference. It is a, a lady who cuts hair, and she is on the verge of having her car repossessed because she's not going to have the money to make her car payment. So do we allow this woman to have her car repossessed because we won't let her take a chance with longtime clients who she has a longtime relationship with, or do we allow her to open her business? Y'all, again, if you missed the first hour, I, I made the case that the numbers are accurate, that, that we, we have crossed 50,000 actual deaths from COVID-19, not the rigged numbers, not the conspiracy theory, nothing, 50,000 cases. Let's just take the numbers as they are. And I am in the position that yes, COVID-19 is bad, way worse than even a bad flu. It is terrible. People are dying. It is highly contagious and it's time to reopen. Based on the stories that are out there right now, it's time to reopen. Based on the rates of decline, you know, RT is the rate of transmission. There is a website, rt.live. Let me go there right now, rt.live. They process data. Uh, the last time the data was, uh, was, was there, the last time the data was updated, it was 1241 a.m. this morning, Eastern time, and Georgia is at 0 .81, 0 .81. The rate of transmission in the state is below one. When the rate of transmission is at or above one, the virus is spreading in the wild. When the rate of transmission is below one, the virus is no longer spreading. At the beginning of this thing, when they told us to shelter in place, they said, you got to get the RT number below one. Once you do that, you can reopen for business. That's what they all said. Now, all the experts said it. The, the people at the White House said it. The people of the state said it. The people in the think tank said it. The people in the media said it. Get RT below one, you can reopen. Our RT is 0.81. It's It's gone up slightly. It was at 0.61 yesterday. It's gone up to 0.81. You can see it for yourself, RT.live. It has gone below one. We should be able to reopen the state with precautions. 
Some states and some local communities are saying they're going to fine you if you don't wear a mask. Pass a law that says everybody's got to wear a mask. Everybody's got to wear a mask. Put a mask on if you want to go outside. That's fine. I think people will if people won't like it, but they'll make the trade-off. Put on the mask to go outside. Do that. Make that compromise. If everybody wore a mask, we know from South Korea, we would stop the transmission of the virus. So make that compromise. Make everybody get a mask. Provide the masks for people who can't afford the masks. Find ways to get people masks. Cloth or surgical, get a masks. But let people get out of their house. We have crossed over into territory where the virus is not spreading. There are certainly things we can do in this country right now to keep the virus from spreading while allowing people to now get out of their house. They, they, the houses. They told us we got to shelter in place for a month to flatten the curve. Not only have we flattened the curve, we, we, the, it is dipping. The data shows it is dipped. We don't want it to spike back. Nobody wants it to spike back. But we did what they said to do. We did what needed to be done. Let us out now. I, I feel the need based on a note I received during the, the break to clarify one thing. Uh, I, I'm My family, we will be sheltering in place until mid-May. We're not really going out and about. Uh, my, my wife is in a high-risk category, and there are idiots. Now, I know we don't like to talk about our fellow human beings and fellow Georgians as idiots, but but can we just be honest? You know the idiots who are out there. The idiots who believe this is all some sort of media deep state plot to get the president and the virus isn't real and Anthony Fauci is a deep state supporting role actor designed to destroy the economy so that people will be unemployed and get mad and embrace socialism. I I, I have heard the people. There are people listening to the show right now who are deeply offended that I just said what I said because they really believe it. And they're idiots. Now listen, I, I'm sorry, but I just I, I I'm not gonna suffer fools on this one. Uh, I don't believe there is some sort of deep state plot to to infect people in the United States and have them die to shut down the economy uh, and to do it globally so it doesn't look as conspicuous as it otherwise would. No, no, I don't believe that. Uh, you know, sometimes the simple answer is the best. A virus come out, came out of China, spread around the world, and it kills people. The end. But there are people who, for the life of me, do not believe that this virus is real. You know, there was a guy I mentioned yesterday that on Sunday I was uh, shopping at my local Publix. You go up one aisle and you down the other, and and nobody pays attention to the signs. I got to tell you, it's they've now got signs up. So as you're headed down an aisle the wrong way, it says you're going the wrong way, turn around. And people are just oblivious. People don't care. And I think, you know, Kroger's not doing that. Kroger's not doing that. And to some degree, there's an ordered flow to going through a Publix that there isn't in a Kroger. I just, I, man, y'all, I have panic attacks going to Kroger. I, I, I love my Publix so much that I go to Kroger and I just cringe. It's like going to a Walmart that has schizophrenia. I mean, a, a Kroger can no longer decide whether it wants to be a Walmart or, or a grocery store. Let's, let's go to the clothing section at the Kroger. What? No. It's like a, it's like Walmart and a Dollar General had a love child and it called it Kroger. But um, it, it, I, I just it baffles me. But the the Publix is much more ordered. The, the Publix is grocery shopping for for civilized people. Um, nonetheless. Uh, <laughs> oh, anyway. So there's this guy in there on Sunday, and he is exactly what you think. 
and he is wearing his Confederate flag ball cap. And he's walking down the, the, the beer and wine aisle in the frozen pizza aisle. He doesn't have anything in his hand. And he's going the wrong way. And there's a woman who is there. She's looking at bottles of wine, I guess. I, I'm I'm going to the frozen. I'm not actually going to buy beer. I'm going to the frozen pizza section because I'm out of my cheapy Totino's pizzas. That I, they're, they're my survival food. And the guy is scoffing at this woman. Now, I, I don't have it on a mask. I, and I should, full disclosure, I did not have it on a mask. The woman did, and the guy's just, he's obnoxious about it. And he's very clearly walking the wrong way on the aisles just to be a jerk. An ick day, I guess I can say in Pig Latin here. He wants to be an ick day. You can figure it out if you know Pig Latin. And it, it's it's obnoxious behavior. And that's the sort of guy who's going to get the, get the virus and spread it around to people because he doesn't think it's a big deal. And he doesn't think that he needs to, I, I mean, I heard people, I'm going to go out of my house and I'm not going to wear a mask. Freedom, freedom. It, you're not freaking Braveheart, you idiot. You have an obligation to your neighbors as well. You actually do have an obligation to your neighbors. Rights come with responsibility. Leave your house. But be a good neighbor. Be like State Farm. Be a good neighbor. It's just, y'all, if you're going to get out of your house, get out of your house. And if you're not going to wear a mask, I, I I didn't wear a mask yesterday. My wife got mad at me. I didn't wear a mask. But I stayed away from everyone. And I didn't cough in front of people. Just be on good behavior. And be safe and be smart and accept the virus is real. And you and everyone else should be fine. Welcome back. It is the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The Justice Action Network is the leading organization in the country focused on criminal justice reform from a bipartisan perspective. There's a problem in our prisons right now, state and federal. The virus, not just spreading among prisoners, but among the staff at the prisons, uh, causing destabilization of systems in the country. And joining me is the president and executive director of the Justice Action Network, Holly Harris, to talk about the issue that's going on. Holly, this has not gotten a lot of coverage. Thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, and I really appreciate you covering the topic. Uh, jails and prisons are now the number one hotspot for spread of the disease in this country. And, you know, we're very grateful to a lot of the governors all around the country that are working very hard to reduce overcrowding and ensure that our correctional officers and people in prisons, but also our healthcare workers and surrounding communities uh, aren't infected. So uh, when, when conservatives like myself hear these issues brought up, we, we kind of grit and, and bear it knowing that, that next we're, we're going to have people advocating for release of all sorts of prisoners, as we've seen in, in New York and, and in California that didn't necessarily go so well, but we also do need to find a solution to the situation because it, it it intuitively makes sense that when you have thousands of people in confined populations, much like in nursing homes, the virus not only is going to spread to the people incarcerated, but to all the people who are working in the prisons as well. And we're going to have destabilizing effects. Sure, absolutely. And I'll tell you, there's a common sense way to do this that is in the best interest of public safety and also public health. And that's identifying individuals who are incarcerated who are the least likely to recommit crimes. You're talking about your elderly individuals, you know, people with pre-existing conditions that make them more susceptible to the virus, you know, and then also people um, who have committed low-level nonviolent offenses who are low risk to the community. Let's find alternatives to incarceration for these individuals. You know, that's worked um, during a time where we didn't have this pandemic. 
Um, and now, you know, it's just more urgent than ever that we're reducing prison overcrowding. Otherwise, look, people are going to die. We're already seeing in, you know, prisons in places like Ohio, where they're ahead of the curve on testing, we're upwards of 70 percent of the individuals who are incarcerated at, at a couple of those prisons are infected. And, and now the surrounding community, you know, has a, a larger percentage of people infected. So, you know, I, these governors just don't want to take that risk. Um, and so, again, we're really grateful to see governors like the governor of Oklahoma, uh, the governor of Ohio, the governor of my home state, of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, you know, taking action to ensure the spread of this disease um, isn't exacerbated. Well, you know, you raise Ohio. That's a good point. Mike DeWine was one of the most aggressive governors out there in the forefront of this, shutting things down, getting people shelter in place, whether they wanted to or not. And suddenly Ohio is seeing a spike through the roof. And it turns out it, it is prison populations where the problem is. Uh, people who are already sheltered in place by force of law get, getting the virus in their prisons and spreading. Um, it's, and of course, that then dries up the state health care costs because the state has an obligation to take care of them. Uh, so I. I I'm struggling to form the question I want to form, but but basically it's it's what do you tell conservatives who are skeptical of this because they've seen what some states have done and and, and they hear the stories? Uh, what do you tell conservatives uh, how to get this done and how to do it right? You know, ironically enough, it's conservatives that have been leading the charge on criminal justice reform for years. I and mean, you're from Georgia. Georgia was one of the leading states you know, at the forefront of the criminal justice reform movement. Our president has done more for, um, you know, prison and sentencing reform um, than really a, a lot of his predecessors. And it's because when you do this the right way, when you do it in a common sense way, um, you know, you can really save tremendous amounts of money while at the same time maintaining public safety. You know, we went way too far back in the 80s and 90s in criminalizing behavior and throwing way too many people behind bars, you know, many of whom were sick, had addiction issues or mental health issues. Those people should have been treated. And instead, we just threw them behind bars. You know, their, their core issues uh, were exacerbated. So when they got out, they returned to crime, returned to prison, and the taxpayers were throwing good money after bad. And you brought up another good point about conservatives. You know, we should we should care about responsible spending. And during this time, we're going to need more investment in small businesses and economic development and education and Lord knows, you know, in health care. You know, now is the time when we need to be tightening our belts um, in a way that is common sense and is responsible. And we know from previous reforms in red states like Georgia, like Kentucky, like Ohio, that you can do this in a way that actually is better for public safety and save hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. Okay. So it, it, this sits on, on a spot that I'm interested in. I'm, I am really proud of the criminal justice reform movement on the issue of addiction, uh, particularly in the 21st century, as addiction becomes a problem. So many people did go to prison who were arrested for drugs they had an addiction problem, and even in prison, they've never actually gotten treated for the underlying problem. So they eventually get out, and they filter right back into addiction. And we seem to be operating on the sick social cycle of people going to prison. The underlying conditions haven't been treated. They come out, go right back into the behavior, and go right back in for a longer time and just wash, rinse, repeat over and over and over again. Uh, and it, not to get sideways off, off of COVID-19, but I think it is directly related. If you wouldn't mind talking about that and, and some of the alternatives that are put in place out there. I know in Georgia we've had some alternatives uh, sure. for that particular cycle of addiction and treatment. 
Look, no state has been more impacted by the drug scourge than my home state, Commonwealth of Kentucky. And I want to give you an example. We got the toughest of the tough on crime prosecutors up in northern Kentucky. His name's Rob Sanders, Kenton County. Um, And, you know, he's called me, you know, multiple times during this crisis. He has worked with his judge and public defender to now reduce his incarcerated population by about 55 percent. Okay. But he's really, really worried about those individuals um, that he's releasing who had have addiction issues. And one of them has already overdosed and died. And that's because they did not have a mechanism to get that individual into treatment right away. And uh, up there in northern Kentucky, it's the Life Learning Center that he partners with, you know, that helps with addiction treatment and job skills and wraparound services that so many of these people that reenter society really need. And this is, you know, this is not a facility that takes taxpayer dollars and it's free to those who enter and they're lifelong members afterwards. It's a wonderful place. But because of COVID, their services have been cut back, obviously, because of social distancing. So they're working hard to get up with technology where they can continue to communicate with folks who need their services. But I'm really worried about what's going to happen when this is all over about the addiction issues we're going to see. And I I do want to thank you, Eric, for bringing that up. We have a mutual friend in common, Jason Pye. uh, He's texting me while we're talking. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, he's down there, down there in, in, in Georgia, um, and he said you gave him his start, actually, in politics uh, at the Peach Pundit. Uh, yes. But uh, he, is, he really understands, you know, the issues surrounding addiction um, probably better than anybody who works in this space, and I do appreciate all that you've been able to do in it as well. Well, look, I, I appreciate that. He is a good guy, and it, it is something I think that doesn't get enough attention out there that – uh, we essentially have so many people in prison who don't necessarily need to be there who could be productive members of society if we just got them the treatment they needed. Uh, and, and I guess I, I can shift back now, having gone through that, back to the COVID-19 situation and that you mentioned there are elderly prisoners who are no threat to society. Uh, the, the recidivism rate there is, is fairly low. They've got people who are uh, minor criminals who went into into prison who don't necessarily need to be there, who could be on house arrest. Uh, it, what are it, what are some of the proposals that the Justice Action Network is making to the states right now on, on those particular sort of cases to get them out of prison? Well, again, you want to start with the people who are most susceptible to the virus, and that's elderly individuals. And by the way, at the age of 55, the risk of recidivism, which is recommitting crime, drops dramatically, okay? So any of your individuals, you know, 55, 60 years of age or older, start start in that population. Um, but then also take a look at individuals who are sick and have pre-existing conditions, because again, they are more susceptible to contracting the virus. Um, so start with with those populations. And then, of course, take a look at all of the individuals, you know, who um, uh, are have been convicted of lower level nonviolent offenses who are low risk to the community um, and, and then start moving those individuals to home confinement. We're not saying open the floodgates. No one is saying that, at least nobody in, in, in my neck of the woods. Um, but everyone understands that when you've got a jail or a prison where a, the disease spreads upwards of 70% of the people in that facility, you know, you're then talking about correctional officers who are going to then take the disease back to their families, spread to the surrounding community, and you're going you're gonna, to uh, overwhelm healthcare workers in those areas. And so it's just a smart thing to do for the entire community to reduce overcrowding right now. And quite frankly, you know, this is something a lot of states have already done and have seen positive public safety results. 
The other thing I want to mention is we can't be excluding, um, you know, small business owners who have records um, from, and this is a federal issue here, but from the, the Paycheck Protection Program. I can hear the beautiful sounds of some work outside my house right now of individuals, you know, who own construction businesses. I hear the hammering and the drilling because these, you know, these folks are, are, are considered essential businesses during this time. And, and, you know, I guarantee you half those individuals probably have records, but they've been able to turn their lives around, embrace the American dream, start a small business, create jobs. And, you know, we can't be overlooking those individuals because we're not talking about an obscure minority there. One in three American adults in this country now has a criminal record. So I want everyone to think about that during this time period. Let's not exclude people with criminal records. Wow, that is a good point. Uh, so many people need need a fresh start. Uh, if we're supposed to forgive and 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 we need to and, and let people try to build their lives. Okay, so I'm talking to Holly Harris. She's the president and executive director of the Justice Action Network. And I, this is the most important question that I'm going to ask you, and, and I may be putting you on the spot on this. That's Louisville okay. or UK? Are you kidding me? Kentucky. All the way, baby. <laughs> I, I know there are strong, more strongly held you, opinions in Kentucky. Person, there is only one person who could win the votes of Republicans, Democrats, and everybody in between in this Commonwealth, and that's Coach Cal. All right? The, that is the one individual who could win the votes of everyone. Everyone. I, I have so. learned in my time. Now, I, I got to be honest with you. I've never actually been to Kentucky as much as I want to go on the bourbon trail. I've never been. But one thing I've learned in my life is there are more strongly held opinions about UK versus Louisville than there are about Georgia, Georgia Tech. I don't know who you're talking to, but there really is no question. You know, who is the more dominant school in, in every aspect? It is the, the it is the University of Kentucky. And it's not just because I went there. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but, but Coach Cal here is king. Um, and we are we are loyal members of the SEC. I'm sure Jason Pye, the big Georgia fan, is listening right now. My parents actually hail from Georgia. My mom went to UGA. My father went to school at Emory, and they are now the two biggest Kentucky fans that you will ever meet. Now, they'll also root for Georgia, just not when Georgia's playing Kentucky. These are very yeah. important points that I think your listeners need to hear. <laughs> is, is that a CIA-backed drone I hear flying over your house now since the director <laughs> of the CIA went to Louisville? <laughs> you know what? I'm not afraid because I have Coach Cal. <laughs> All right. So I'm not Listen. afraid of your drone. <laughs> All right, Holly. Th thank you so much for stopping by. I really do appreciate it. Very helpful. And, and best of luck to you guys. Please keep me posted on this because it, it is a big issue, and I think conservatives do need to get on board with it. Yeah, I really appreciate you covering the issue. And for that moment of levity, go Cats. <laughs> All right. Holly Harris. You know, this actually is, if you're just tuning in, uh, so Holly Harris, the President and Executive Director of the Justice Action Network, one of the, the bits of data that has been pointed out is that 70% uh, of the growth of COVID-19 cases now in this country are happening in incarcerated populations. And we do want to contain that. The problem here is that it's not just the prisoners who get the virus, it's the guards who get the virus. The guards go home and they give it to their spouse and their kids who then go out of their house and give it to others and, and it spreads again. And we got to find a way to do that. And, and the Justice Action Network does actually have a fairly good plan that a number of Republican governors are embracing that makes sense. Uh, you got elderly populations in some prisons. They're not going to be recidivist threats. So go on and move them out. They're the highest risk. And taxpayers don't want to have to cover all these costs in, in, in prison anyway. So move them out. Uh, there are people who are uh, low risk to commit further crimes. 
You can put them on house arrest. If, if they have somewhere to go, put them on house arrest uh, and wind down some of these populations, at least temporarily. Uh, you may have to bring some of the house arrest people back later when the virus is contained, but it actually is a real problem. And, and it, unfortunately, we're seeing in California, New York is probably the best example. The number of people in New York that Bill de Blasio just let out of jail and they're committing more crimes and they're going to have to go back to jail now. They didn't do it in a thoughtful, logical process. There should be a thoughtful, logical process. And, and de Blasio just wouldn't let everybody to jail. That's a problem. Now, a UK grad, Holly Harris, of course, has a pathway. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I had to ask the Kentucky question. It is a big deal in Kentucky. My goodness. I mean, it, it is a, it is a, you people think that the Georgia versus Georgia Tech issue is real or the Auburn versus Alabama. I have never seen a hated, a heated hatred a rivalry like Louisville and University of Kentucky. It, it is, it's, it's impressive to behold. Uh, and at some point I want to go up to Kentucky and see if I can stir the pot with those people. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number. If you would like to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, we're, oh, the meat shortages. I do need to talk about the meat shortages. Before I get there though, let me talk about PPP because as you can imagine, uh, the government has yet again screwed up the payroll protection program. Uh, there are uh, delays. There are computer crashes. It is a mess, uh, a, a genuine mess out there. And all sorts of banks are having problems. Now, $60 billion was allocated by the government this time that only small banks could apply through that. Uh, I know of a small bank. If you need payroll protection, consider going to First Liberty building and loan here in Georgia. They're in Noonan. You probably know this, uh, the, 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 oh my goodness. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I just, I was paying a bill online and, and the company's name got stuck in my head, but <laughs> the Frost family, Brant Frost, uh, and uh, his son, Brant, his daughter, Katie, uh, the whole family, they're involved in this business. Uh, it is first Liberty building and loan in Noonan. They are really good people. I've known them for a while. They they were one of the very first people to step up and say, you know what? We will help you get your show off the ground. We'll be a sponsor. And they have sponsored uh, this program. And they came back, and I was referring people to them to begin with and want to refer you to them again. If you go to their website, firstlibertyga.com, what you will find is an Apply Now button on their website. And if you need to get into the payroll protection program, you can do the application online. Uh, they have gotten a ton of applications in. They have. Uh, but they're willing to help people. Uh, you can call them. Their number's on their website. You can call them as well. Tell them I sent you. Uh, and that helps me too. Uh, but it is firstlibertyga.com is their website. I, I thank them for their sponsorship. I thank them for their friendship. Uh, and I go to them if you need help. They've been in the business since 1993. And they just help small businesses. And this is a, a really, really necessary program for a lot of people. And the government has yet again screwed it up. Very much in the same way the government is helping screw up the food shortage issue in this country. Now, I got to tell you, I went to the grocery store yesterday, and I'm starting to see more paper towels and toilet paper on the shelves. In fact, I went to Publix late yesterday. It was after my evening show, so it would have been after 6 o'clock, and there was still paper towels on the shelves. There were no toilet paper, but there were paper towels, and that's the first two. Um, and there is toilet paper. In fact, I got a box from Amazon of Charmin toilet paper. And so the toilet paper's coming and the paper towels are coming. And 
you need, it looks like that's been resolved, but now there's a new shortage on the horizon and it's the meat shortage because at Tyson's and Smithfield and a number of other uh, pork and beef processing plants, workers have come to work with the virus. And you know, that's going to be one of the, the challenges we have as we reopen is look, those workers knew that if they were sick and came to work, that they could spread the virus and it could undermine the entire nation's food supply chain. And they came to work because they weren't sick and they didn't have symptoms, but they were contagious and didn't know it. And the result has been that they are in fact spreading the virus. And so now we're looking at meat shortages. That, that by the way, if you can build a relationship with a, an Omaha Steaks, or an Allen Brothers, or a um, or a uh, DeBraga, or a Porter Road, or or something like that. You may want to get into a or Butcher Box, uh, get into a subscription program for meat right now. Uh, if you if you know of local farms, there are a number of local farms in Georgia that will sell direct to customers. You can even get whole. I mean, you can you can buy half a cow if you want, and stock your freezer. But we're probably going to have to do something. Uh, in this country soon, uh, the farm to table movement and, and local supplies are, have been really good for a lot of people, but we're, we got some problems coming up in the food supply chain and, and Tyson foods and Smithfield are starting to warn people that we may soon be out of ground beef, for example, uh, not a good situation. And it, a lot of it has to do with government regulation that makes it very difficult for these farms to sell to consumers as opposed to restaurants and stuff. And, then you got the virus on top of it. Why, hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The third hour of the program. Another fine and exciting hour. And the phone number, if you would like to join me, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Although, uh, so our call screener has an immediate boss between uh, him and me and the immediate boss ruled no more phone calls and, and he has had to sneak behind uh his boss and reopen the phone lines uh and and I have no control over his immediate boss uh due to the way the organizational chart works here at the Eric Erickson show uh because she's what two or three and she hit the disconnect button on the phones and so he had to go undermine her and man he is going to be in a world of hurt when she realizes he Daddy pushed the button, <laughs> but I, we did have a call on hold before she demanded that the calls be stopped. And I'm going to go to, all right, all right. Seriously, Rooster in Athens, uh, Rooster, welcome. Yep. Yep. I had, a, I had a fun comment for you. Are you there? Yep. I'm here. Okay. Okay. I got a fun comment for you. Uh, you were talking about the meat shortage. Here in Georgia, with the with the or all over the states, the the Packers are coming down with the Corona crap and closing up. Well, you know, uh, China had the same problem, so they started doing wet markets. So maybe that's a solution. <laughs> we can all start eating bats. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now I, I got to ask you the question: uh, Where'd you get the name Rooster? Uh, I do a chicken cluck thing, and it's just uh, it's it's a long story. <laughs> All right, I'll let you go there. Thank you very much for that. You know, so if you're just tuning in, there there is a uh, meat packers across the country are man. 
I'm sorry. The phrase meatpacker can be taken the wrong way. Thankfully, we're in Georgia. Those who process meat are saying that we could be in a shortage of beef and pork here very soon. The euphemisms for this section of the show just write themselves, do they not? (laughs) Nonetheless, you get my point. Uh, Chicken, you don't have to worry about. Uh, So much chicken in this country is... Uh, for egg production, and by and large, the egg production is fine. And there's a lot of cow production out there for milk, and the milk production in the country is fine. It is the beef and pork for consumption that is, by and large, the problem, and and potentially chicken for consumption as well being part of the problem because COVID-19 has gotten into processing plants and is causing all sorts of problems for all sorts of people and all sorts of workers and they can't come to work. And the other problem is still, you know, we had Sonny Purdue on a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about this problem. And it's one they're having to fight their way through in the, in the government bureaucracy in that it is very difficult for meat processors to sell to consumers when they normally sell to corporations. Now, why? Well, let me give you a good example of this. You sell beef to a a gourmet restaurant. The odds are that restaurant is going to get a, a half a cow, and inside that restaurant, they're going to process it, and they're going to carve it into the steaks. They're going to carve it into, they're going to make the roast. They're going to make the ground beef. And the restaurants are going to do that, or the local butcher shops are going to do that, that the restaurants then source from. And they don't do direct-to-consumer sales, and it becomes a problem. Now, grocery stores can only buy so much, but you do that, and you offset it with the decline in production, and you're in the world hurt. Because our supply chain in this country typically revolves around uh, immediate need. So, you know, tomorrow in Dubuque probably going to sell a thousand pounds of ground chuck. You process the ground chuck today, you put it in a refrigerated truck, you get it to Dubuque in the morning to the grocery store so they can meet their needs for the day. Well, now that's a problem. And and there's food in storage. And, you know, I do have to say that I have some level of skepticism in the story because uh, there were initially reports out from a month ago, not to worry, that we had so much meat in uh, freezer storage in this country that we wouldn't have to run out of it. Uh, we would be able to meet the demands through the end of the year. And now they're saying, oh, we only have two weeks worth left of uh, two weeks of food in freezer storage. I There's a disconnect between the two stories there. One thing I will tell you that you should consider doing, and you should do it anyway, and, and we've done it in my family in the past, and we haven't, I, I'm not practicing what I preach because we gave it up for a while because we just weren't using it enough. Uh, and we probably need to get back to it, is there are companies you can use for subscription services for meat. Uh, my my favorite one is Porter Road in Nashville, and their local farms and send stuff. Uh, there's also um, Butcher Box is another one. Then I have a long-term relationship. I, you know, so on my other show, I've done advertising for Omaha Steaks in the past, and I love them. You can get really good stuff from Omaha Steaks, but th- that's a place where if you need meat, you can source meat from for them. Uh, I Now, I went, gosh, about a month ago or so, no, two months ago. So we were planning on going to Hilton Head for spring break. And I was worried about the grocery store situation we would find in Hilton Head if we went. And so I went on and ordered a bunch of meat and I went on and ordered a bunch of paper products. So I got plenty of paper towels and I got plenty of toilet paper and I got steaks and roasts and 
pork loins and pork tenderloins and hamburger meat because uh, I was planning on taking it all to the beach so we wouldn't have to leave, so we wouldn't have to go grocery shopping. And so we wound up not going to the beach. We're planning on it for the 4th of July weekend now. And uh, so I've got this meat, so we'll be fine in our house. And I've been going down to Hawkinsville to M&T and buying up meat there as well. Uh, and well before this, I still got some. I'm assuming it'll, it'll still be good. Maybe slightly freezer burn, but if we're desperate, I'm sure it'll be workable. Uh, but nonetheless, um, it, there's a problem, and you know the other problem is that farmers are having to destroy stock, and it just it's it's crazy. In fact, this Bloomberg story today says the federal government is trying to help farmers dispose of animals, as opposed to helping them sell stuff. Um, it's just it it's it's crazy. It, it's it's just it's it's. I'm frustrated with the federal government looking at farmers who have stock and thinking, hey, you know what? Let's kill all the cows and bury them or dispose of them as opposed to figuring out ways to get them to food banks or restaurants or into grocery stores. Now, I got to say, uh, you, you know, I, I love my Publix. Publix is buying up a lot of excess milk and meat uh, that would otherwise be thrown away by some of these places, and they're giving them to food banks around the country, uh, and particularly in the southeast where Publix is, which is a good one, uh, and, and very much appreciate them doing that. Uh, relevant to this, let's go to Robin. W- welcome to the program. How are you? Uh, I'm doing fine. What about you? All right. What's going on? Well, you know- uh, I just uh, basically what you're just talking about as for to the government get these form of subsidy and it's almost like welfare to them as far as uh, giving them money to destroy meat and uh, vegetable vegetable and we're saying I do you think that that is correct as far as uh, they always talking about you know the minorities on welfare but you understand these farmers and they were trying to get on uh, uh, welfare by getting these subsidies, and these subsidies are just a uh, way of them to produce food without selling it to the public, and then you understand they want to destroy it all. And it's and, like you know, and you, and you see the I, videos and and the 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 pictures of the farmers having to dump their crops, and, and the USDA making them dump the crops. It's always been obscene to me how many oranges a year are thrown out. And you know, uh, to be fair, most of the farmers don't want the subsidies. Like we're paying farmers subsidies right now because of the trade war with China. They, they didn't want it. They would much rather sell their product to China, but because of the trade war, they can't sell their products. So the governments have to bail out. They don't want to bail out that they, they want, they won't work. But the other problem is, uh, farmers, unless they can get into one of these, uh, direct producer programs, uh, direct essentially farm to table programs, They've got to go through middlemen. So the farmer sells the cow to a middleman. The middleman resells the cow to the to the distributor. And the distributor sells to the grocery store. The farmer doesn't have a direct relationship with the distributor, or the farmer sells to the distributor, and the distributor then sells to the grocery store. The farmer doesn't sell to the grocery chain, and it becomes a real problem for the farmers because the farmers get the least amount of money out of it. We have designed a system in food distribution right now that keeps farmers poor, frankly. We have designed a system 
that incentivizes farmers having to toss food as opposed to getting it into people's hands. And that's not a sustainable system. I, you know, I said this the other day, and I, I really do mean it, and, and I hope somebody's doing it. I hope someone somewhere is keeping a list of all the problems we're encountering with the food chain and doing our best to fix those problems so that when we get out of this crisis, we can say, okay, here are all the things we know that went wrong, and let's see what we can do regulatory-wise or otherwise to fix these problems. And my concern is that we're going to see Democrats decide we need more regulation and Republicans decide we need less regulation. And people are going to come out of the crisis with their prior views intact and no one's actually going to say, hey, maybe we should do things differently. Maybe we should do things differently. I think when it comes to the food shortages in this country, there probably does need to be less regulation. And in fact, we probably do need to incentivize systems where it becomes very easy to flip switches that no longer that do not exist and have never existed, but a way to flip switches so that farmers who are selling uh, to distributors and to restaurants can very easily begin selling direct to consumers when we get into situations like this. Because I, you know, I've got the sneaking suspicion. Let's just say they're right that COVID nineteen comes back and we don't have a we don't have a vaccine yet, and a lot of a, a lot of people are going to have to go back to sheltered in place. I don't think we're ever going to go back to a full shelter in place situation. I really, I, I I can't see us doing that. Maybe maybe people will. You know, if it's like the Spanish flu, is the second round of the Spanish flu that was actually the most deadly because people had let their guard down. And when it came back, nobody believed it was going to be that bad. And not only was it bad, but it had mutated the best scientists can figure out and became actually even more deadly. So more people were getting it and more people were dying. And I, I don't, I don't know that that'll happen, but I do think the second round will be more deadly. Uh, and we're going to have to come up with ways for some to shelter in place where vulnerable populations while others try to figure out a way to navigate through and go about their lives, we'll, we'll have to figure all that out. One of the things we're going to have to figure out is the su- supply chain and the food chain. You know, speaking of supply chain, uh, this is a perfect time for me to bring up Mrs. Griffin's uh, as a sponsor of this program. I was in Publix yesterday, and they had a fully stocked shelf of Mrs. Griffin's right next to a fully empty shelf of, of um, ketchup. There was no Heinz ketchup. There was no Hunt's ketchup. Uh, the only ketchup they had was the low-sodium, like, sugar-free ketchup. And there was some sriracha ketchup, and then there was some generic brand ketchup, which should tell you everything you need to know about the the purchase. It's always the Heinz ketchup that goes uh, first. And I, I drove up on Sunday. I drove up to the Ingles in uh, Forsyth, and they had all the Heinz ketchup you could buy. It's just so weird. But they both had Mrs. Griffin's, and here's the reason why. And, and this is actually a perfect segue. Uh, we can consider this. We can consider this an ad. They are a sponsor, but this is perfect. Um, Roland Neal is, is the, the uh, CEO of Mrs. Griffin's Barbecue Sauce. This is the oldest barbecue sauce company still operating in this country, and I am stunned at the number. I thought it was like a fresh discovery of mine a couple of years ago, and I am stunned at all the people I know who it's their regular go-to, uh, go-to barbecue sauce. Uh, it's an old-school southern mustard-based barbecue sauce. It is tasty. It's great with chicken and pork. Now, it, it, let, let's consider that the ad, and, and now let me go forward. They are local here in Georgia, and they are taking it upon themselves to keep the supply lines going for their product and putting it on store shelves. Contrast that with, like, for example, Heinz, where Heinz Ketchup Company, uh, what J.R. Heinz is not 
necessarily distributing on the supply lines their own stuff. And so you're more likely to not find it or contrast that with your local farmer who is not in the supply chain. And so he passes it off to someone who puts his beef or his chicken or his pork in the supply chain and it eventually trickles down, but they've lost that connection. So Mrs. Griffins can ensure that they're fully stocked in grocery stores, wherever they're sold, Walmart, Ingles, Piggly Wiggly, the like, they can ensure that they're regularly sold and that their supply lines are open and they have a very good idea of how they're selling because they are handling the supply themselves. The toilet paper people know that their shortages are out there because they're seeing the headlines like the rest of us. The farmer doesn't have any idea because he's selling to the middleman and he doesn't know. A lot of the vegetable producers are the same way. Uh, when you when you lose that local connection and that supply line connection, you become more and more oblivious. There are, the, you know, Donald Rumsfeld used to talk about the, the known unknowns. There are things we know that we don't know. And one of the things farmers know that they don't know is what the situation is in the grocery stores. Uh, generally, they may go to their local grocery store and say, huh, they don't have any steak today. Maybe I need to go slaughter a cow and get it out there. But uh, they, they, they otherwise don't know. They don't have those metrics. Mrs. Griffin's does. They can say, okay, this store is running low. We need to go restock that store. And, and they're going to manufacture it. They're going to bottle it. They're going to drive it. They're going to put it on the self, shelf themselves. In fact, I've heard from multiple small businesses that do just like Mrs. Griffin's does that they're going into the stores and the storekeepers are so overwhelmed because the supplies are going so they, a lot of stores don't have enough people in the back to restock the shelves. I was in the grocery store the other day and, and kept hearing pages for people to come help restock. Grocery stores are overwhelmed on, on two fronts. One, there's short supplies on, on some products, and on some, there's an overabundance of supplies and not enough people to put them on the shelves. We are seeing weaknesses in the system. The question is, is anyone with pen and paper writing down what those weaknesses are and figuring out ways to solve them? So if the virus does rebound in the fall, like everybody seems to think, can we combat the weaknesses? I want to play you a couple of clips clips from the White House uh, briefing yesterday afternoon from the president. So people have stepped up to the plate. I think we're going to have a, a really good, I think it's going to start building. I think it's going to build fast. I think it'll be a tremendous, tremendous comeback. And, you know, so I say I built the greatest economy with all of the people that helped me and all of the people in this country. We built the greatest economy the world has ever seen, and we're going to do it again. We're doing everything in our power to heal the sick and to gradually reopen our nation and to safely get our people back to work. They want to get back to work and they want to get back to work soon. There's a hunger for getting our country back and it's happening and it's happening faster than people would think. Ensuring the health of our economy is vital to ensuring the health of our nation. These goals work in tandem. They work side by side. It's clear that our aggressive strategy to slow the spread has been working and is saving countless lives. China accountable, and how do you keep our country? Well, Shelley, there are a lot of ways you can hold them accountable. We're doing very serious investigations, as you probably know. And we are not happy with China. We are not happy with that whole situation because we believe it could have been stopped at the source. It could have been stopped quickly and it wouldn't have spread all over the world. And we think that should have happened. Uh, so we'll uh, let you know at the appropriate time. Now, I wanted to run those just so you get a sense of the press conference yesterday. Uh, 
two big issues that the White House is dealing with right now is the China situation. How do we deal with China? It is increasingly clear that the Chinese were peddling propaganda that was being pushed by the World Health Organization, knowingly or unknowingly. The executive director of the World Health Organization has come under attack now for some of his background. Uh, but then the, the economic situation is another big deal that the White House is having to deal with. And Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, has come out and says he does think we're going to see a big rebound uh, in the economy. One of the things that we have to do is get the testing up to speed before we can get people out of their houses and get the economy rebound. Uh, and we're doing what we can. L here's a little bit more here from Fox and the president. The White House wants diagnostic testing for anyone who is symptomatic, plus first responders and medical personnel. They also want surveillance, surveillance testing for high-risk populations, things like people in nursing homes and whatnot. So in total, the White House wants to be able for the states to test about 2% of its population. Some governors may want to do more. If that is the case, like governors in New York, Andrew Cuomo, if that's the case, the White House says it is going to work with those states individually to try to increase that testing capacity even further. But this is a big increase. I mean, right now, according to the COVID tracking project, uh, the U.S. has tested about 1.6 percent of the entire population in the entire country. Now the White House wants to test about 2 percent of people per state. So that is a dramatic increase. And the president said as much as well. I don't have time in this segment to play you his audio, but that's going to be the key to getting the country completely back to normal. And frankly, we are looking at a situation where employers are going to require regular testing of people to make sure they don't have the virus. And you can say that's a violation of your civil rights, but it's a private employer. They don't have to keep you on the payroll. They're concerned about liability issues. Employers are increasingly concerned that they're going to get sued if they allow people back into their offices and uh, those offices then um, don't start getting the virus spread again. That's a real issue there. Mitch McConnell wants to pass legislation that will uh, protect employers on that issue. I don't know that it's going to happen. When we come back, there is other news out there besides the virus, including Joe Biden and the Tara Reid situation continues to grow. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. Yes, it is my show. And the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I got to find, hang on a second, where, what? Technical issues here. Let me pull up Twitter because I bookmarked something on Twitter to read you because we can all have a laugh at the reporter's expense. Good gracious, it is predictable. This is this is uh, a, a story. They have changed it now, but this is the tweet. This is the tweet from Post Politics. That is the Washington Post political section. Developments in allegations against Biden amplify efforts to question his behavior. My pause is intentional. Shall I read this again? Developments in allegations against Biden amplify efforts to question his behavior. Now, this goes to a Washington Post story. And the Washington Post story headline is Trump allies highlight new claims regarding allegations against Biden. It is a, a liberal reporter from the Washington Post doing damage control for Joe Biden. Some allies 
of President Trump pointed Monday to new claims by a woman who said she was told about sexual assault allegations against Joe Biden decades ago, renewing attention to questions about the past behavior of the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee. Apparent corroboration surfaced this week for elements of two accusations made by Biden's former Senate aide Tara Reid, one involving harassment and the second a sexual assault. Biden has not commented on the allegations, but his campaign has denied them and pointed to his record on women's rights and promotion of women in his offices. Bill Clinton had a great record for women's rights, according to the left. Hmm. Linda Lacasse, who was one of Reed's neighbors in California, where Reed moved after working for Biden, said in an interview with Business Insider published Monday that Reed told her in the mid-90s that Biden has put his put his finger up her skirt and put his fingers inside her. Lorraine Sanchez, a former colleague of Reed's in the office of a California state senator, also told the news outlet that Reed told her in the mid-90s that she had been sexually harassed by her former boss while she was in Washington, and as a result of her voicing her concerns to her supervisors, she was let go, fired. Sanchez did not recall whether Reed mentioned Biden specifically or whether she provided further details about the allegations. In recent days, a 1993 call into Larry King's CNN show also surfaced. In it, a woman whom Reed identified as her now-deceased mother called to report unspecified problems her daughter was having with her employer, whom she called a prominent senator. The caller said her daughter did not want to go public with her account out of respect for the unnamed senator. Neither Lacasse nor Sanchez responded to messages left by the Washington Post. Reed made the harassment accusation last year. The allegations were collated. Now, you should know, you should know that one of these people has said that it doesn't matter, uh, still voting for Biden because Trump's a terrible person. I, I, I get the sense at this point that the media, they don't want to cover the Biden stuff, but they still hide behind the veneer of objectivity, so they got to cover the Biden stuff. So the way they're covering the Biden stuff is to cover it and make it all about Republican talking points as opposed to uh, what actually happened, what this woman said. Uh, Let me play you again. If you didn't hear, this is the Larry King audio. This is Tara Reid's mother calling into Larry King live in the 90s. Yes, hello. Um, I'm wondering what um, uh, a a staffer uh, would do besides go to the press in Washington. My daughter has just left there. Uh, after working for a prominent senator and could not get through with her problems at all. And the only thing she could have done was go to the press, and she chose not to do it out of respect for him. Or she had a story to tell, but out of respect for the person she worked for, she didn't tell it. That's true. Okay. Well. Hmm. What do you do? What do you do? Y'all. There seems to be a there there with Joe Biden that did not exist with Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, let's just let's be real honest here. I I don't believe Christine Blasey Ford. Christine Blasey Ford, her own lawyer said only came forward because of the abortion issue, was scared of what Brett Kavanaugh would do. She had no witnesses contemporaneous to the time. 
she named several people she thought could be witnesses, and they all had no memory of it. Hmm. Uh, compare that to this. We now have numerous people. There are more people who remember Tara Reid in, at the time, coming forward and saying Joe Biden had done this. Then, and by the way, these people overwhelmingly are Democrat and they're saying it about Joe Biden. And it, my point here is not to say she's telling the truth because I don't know. And if I'm really honest about it and my view on it, it is that when an event like this happens in the early 90s and it is now 2020, and there are no other people to come for. I mean, this is one of the things the left tried to do with, with Brett Kavanaugh is to have multiple people come forward. Now, it turns out that they couldn't find people. There were people making up stories and they were thoroughly discredited and, and the media got egg on its face. But that's what they tried. And here, there's just this one person who in the early 90s had this happen and there's been no allegation about Joe Biden since from any other woman. Now, maybe they're out there and they don't want to come forward. That's that's fair. Or maybe they've decided, like this one woman who came forward and said, yeah, Tara Reid told me it was Joe Biden, that he did this to her, and I'm still voting for him because Donald Trump's a pig. Those people could be out there too who are mad at Tara Reid. Yeah, Tara, it happened to you, and I'm sorry, but we got to stop Trump. That, 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 that could be there too. But I, honest to goodness, in my assessment of this, in all fairness and intellectual honesty, if this happened in the early 90s and Tara Reid did not come forward until now, uh, I am not treating this with any more seriousness than she treated it. And you can say, well, she couldn't come forward, but you know what? She could have come forward in 2008 when he was being vetted to be vice president. She could have come forward then, could have made a media stink about it then, but she didn't. So it, it, it reeks of a level of political opportunism, and, and you can hate me for saying it. That's fine. I, I, I get hated for a lot of stuff, but in intellectual honesty, I, I think that's the thing. But but there's another angle on this, and this is the one that I think should be given credibility and candor and credit. The Democrats want a standard for accusing people on the right that they refuse to have for themselves. The Democrats want to be able to destroy the character of people based on accusations and then not have the character of Democrats destroyed based on accusations. The Democrats want to be able to defame Brett Kavanaugh for a situation that took place further back in time than the Tara Reid situation with a woman who has no witnesses and yet want to give the presidential nomination to a man when his accuser has multiple witnesses from the time that it happened who remember the accusation. There is a staggering level of hypocrisy in that. There, there really is. Y'all, I mean, come on. We went through that Brett Kavanaugh situation and the Democrats were saying it was the it was the it was the accusation that had power. 
that believe all women. I mean, we went through this entire believe all women thing. It led to the Me Too movement. We, we, all sorts of powerful men were brought down for repulsive behavior. Some were brought down for inconsequential behavior, but there was just a pile on. It, it was like the, the Salem witch trials. And I don't want to downplay the, the real victims of, of people like Weinstein who brought down a man and put him in jail and good riddance. But there were other claims out there that, that ruined people. What, what, who was the comedian? The, the, the woman apparently had a bad date with him and decided to, to try to bring him down as well. Not, no, not that guy uh, that, that I'm not sure. No, who was the, I can't remember. You know who I'm talking about. Basically, he was a bad date. Um, was it good in bed or some such and, and decided to try to embarrass him and ruin him. Um, but we went from believe all women to it is the accusation that must be believed, not the facts, to, oh, well, that, that was Brett Kavanaugh. This doesn't apply to Joe Biden. We're, we're, giving, we're giving Brett Kavanaugh a position for life. Joe Biden, I mean, he would be term limited, eight years most, even though he'd be the most powerful man on earth. I mean, it is a level of hypocrisy. And, and see, this is this is the big issue. I, and I've been talking about this so much. It's like the media credibility on these stories, how the media wants to amplify stuff against Republicans and play stuff down on Democrats. They, they want to do this for Joe. They want to give Joe Biden some cover here. Now, where is this? I, I, I put this up. Let me get back into Twitter. Um, one of the people who has been covering this is a relentlessly partisan progressive reporter named Ryan Grimm. Uh, he's big on drug legalization and, and a host of other things. He writes for a left-wing publication and he was a total Bernie bro. And so he's been covering this in large part because he really wanted Bernie Sanders and he hates Joe Biden. Biden is too moderate for him, but let me read you this. Uh, let me pre-answer some of the, the issues relating to why I'm covering this to the question of why on earth would you be reporting on this when we're facing a deadly global pandemic in the midst of a presidential election of existential importance? As Biden likes to say, here's the deal. I decided early in my career that I would never suppress a story if the only reason I were doing so was concern about its political implications. If you do that, you're no longer a journalist. What's more, nobody knows what the implications or consequences of reporting a story will be. We might think we know, but we don't. Indeed, it's quite possible that reporting the story now actually helps Biden in the long run as he'd be dealing with it in October instead. That could be wrong, but the point is it's not for me to decide. My point is to find and report stories of importance and then let people, voters and politicians, etc., decide what to do with them. Now, Grimm is, is a pretty, uh, he's not even pretty, he is a massively left-wing guy and he wants to ruin Biden to get a Sanders more likely than not. I, I just, I, I find it interesting. Um, listen to this uh, again. I decided early in my career that I would never suppress a story. If the only reason I were doing it, doing so were concerns about his political implications. So in other words, he'll, he'll suppress a story, just not just for political implications. Okay, but the left is really unhappy here, and this gets to the whole Stacey Abrams stuff again. Abrams is desperate to be vice president, and they just can't decide in the Biden team, do they need a black person or a progressive? Now, Abrams would check the box. Kamala Harris would check the box. She'd be progressive and black. 
The problem with Abrams, if we're honest about it, is experience. She doesn't really have a lot of experience. I mean, what? what hang on a second. Um, let me, let me, Stacey Abrams, Wikipedia. She's, oh, she's, she's my sister's age. She's a couple years older than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So she was in the Georgia General Assembly from 2007 to 2017. She was there for 10 years, represented a House District 89, parts of the city of Atlanta and unincorporated DeKalb County, including Candler Park, Cedar Grove, Columbia, Druid Hills, Edgewood, Highland Park, Kelly Lake, Kirkwood, yada, yada, yada. She was on the Appropriations Committee, the Ethics Committee, the Judiciary Non-Civil Committee, the Rules and Ways and Means Committees. Um, let's see. She, in 2017, she decided to run for governor. She ran in 2018 and she lost. So she was a state representative for a decade. The end. The end. That's it. And she thinks she's qualified to be the vice president of the United States. Now, back in the beginning of this country, you could be qualified to be vice president of the United States when you hadn't really done much anything because no one no one had run government. George Washington had been a general. He hadn't even been governor of Virginia, and we put him in charge of the country, and thank God we did. But nowadays, particularly with Biden, he's almost 80 years old. He's already talking about one term. You want someone kind of credible, and that's kind of the problem here. You've got a lot of Democrats behind the scenes who are thinking, you know, if Joe Biden is only going to serve one term, do we really want to give it to someone who couldn't even win her own state? And the odds are Stacey Abrams on the ballot with Joe Biden is not going to cause Georgia to go to the Democrats. It's just not. I mean, Georgia didn't go to Stacey Abrams against Brian Kemp. Why is he going to go to Joe Biden? But she's trying to make her case. You know, I said earlier in the show that part of this is that she realizes that in 2022, Brian Kemp's going to get reelected. So why? But part of this as well is she's thinking if Biden's only going to serve one term, she could skip being governor and become president in a in, in for Biden's second term. I, she's, you know, I see politicians on both sides who are too ambitious. And I didn't, I, I knew that every politician is ambitious. You run for office, you're ambitious. But Abrams never really struck me as being overly ambitious. I mean, she's ambitious. Don't get me wrong here. But not to the point where she's out there launching a campaign to try to be vice president of the United States. I I just, I think she might be damaging herself long-term. Because, you know, if she's that aggressive in her campaign now to be vice president and Joe Biden doesn't pick her, well, then that's a great talking point. Stacey Abrams, even Joe Biden wouldn't pick her for vice president. Why should George pick her for governor? Uh, But, hey, she's going all in on it. Uh, God bless her for trying, putting her passion in it. One day I'll get back to the recipes. Right now I really want you to text DATA to 33777 so that you can see the state data yourself so you don't have to believe me. You know, one of the things I'm continuing to find, and and not to be repetitive from yesterday, but all I can do is give you the data. I I, I can't get you to accept the data. I can't get you to decide the data is real. I can't get you to decide that doctors aren't trying to be malicious and rigging the data for more money. I can't get you to to acknowledge that while that may happen in some cases, that they're isolated and, and not the norm. 
All I can do is give you the data, and what you do with it is is what you do with it. If you text data to three three seven seven seven, you'll you'll see the the updated website from the Georgia Department of Public Health. The total number of tests given thus far one hundred twenty seven thousand one hundred sixty nine. Total ICU cases, 1,082. The total confirmed cases in Georgia right now, 24,551. Total hospitalizations, 4,778. Total deaths, 1,020. The total number of deaths has gone up uh, by about 50 since I started the program just based on the release of data. Where we are in total counts right now in the state of Georgia, though, should give us courage and give us hope. The confirmed cases on April 20th, 726. Confirmed cases on April 21st, 667. 601 the next day. Then down to 460. Then down to 395. Then down to 148. Then down to 68. Then down to 52. And now down to 14. 14 cases thus far today. That number will go up. All those numbers will go up a little bit just based on testing coming back in. But clearly, we sheltered in place. Now, I, I so here, here's the thing. I know Tucker Carlson has a monologue out, and I, I, I Tucker is a friend. Well, I, I shouldn't say he's a friend. Tucker and I get along well. Um, it, we don't have a, a a regular relationship. I live in Georgia. He lives in Washington. We get together every once in a while, uh, or have in the past. A uh, very nice guy. Really like him. And and Tucker has a monologue that's getting a lot, lots of buzz that shelter in place was always the bad idea. The virus just turned out not to be as bad as we thought it was. And it's, it's time to, to let people go back to work. I agree. It's time to let people go back to work, but I don't think it's a coincidence when you look at the curves and the dramatic fall off in cases in the last couple of weeks that every state that has seen the same curve has sheltered in place. I mean, there's a a correlation causation argument, but when every state is sheltering in place except for a couple, and those couple are still seeing the virus growing, and the ones that sheltered in place are seeing the virus receding, I I think you can say that sheltering in place actually worked. And for the conservatives to say, but Sweden, but Sweden, but Sweden, have you paid attention to what's happening in Sweden? They're having to crack down even further. The amount of deaths in Sweden now exceeds Norway, Denmark, and Finland combined. And those countries sheltered in place. All I can do is give you the data. Whether you, whether you accept the data or not, that's on you. But let me give you some other data. One of the helpful things, if you text data to 33777, you can see it yourself. What the Department of Public Health in Georgia has decided to do is to show the cases per 100,000. So, for example, in Randolph County, there are 2,309 cases per 100,000 people. Now, there aren't 100,000 people there, but that's the, the benchmark metric. Randolph County is the worst hit per 100,000. That's only 156 cases and 21 hospitalizations. But population-wise, it's overwhelming. Or Darty County, 1,658. And then you go to the other end of the scale, and you've got McIntosh County, 27 cases per 1,000 people. That's not bad. Even places like Fulton County are not nearly as hard hit in terms of population, overall population, as some of these rural poor counties in southwest Georgia. It is very clear that a one-size-fits-all approach is not the right way forward as we begin to reopen the state. And thankfully, the governor's got a good plan and a head on his shoulders to do it.